0: Well, hello, and welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. Before we dive into today's topic, which is plural effusions, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout out. This one goes out to Nina, who's in my Crucial Concepts Bootcamp program, and Crucial Concepts Bootcamp is my nursing school prep course that is on sale right now. And here's what Nina says. Crucial Concepts Bootcamp showed me that I could survive nursing school even if I wasn't the smartest person in the room, that I didn't have to know everything, that I just needed to be able to think critically with what I do know, and that I could actually enjoy learning in nursing school. Nina, thank you so much for taking time to submit your thoughts on boot camp. And I am just absolutely thrilled that it helped you realize that you could 100% not just survive nursing school, but actually really enjoy it. So thank you again so very much. If you're heading into nursing school and you want to learn more about this nursing school prep course, Crucial Concepts Boot Camp, click on the episode notes. I will put a link for it there, or you can just go to my website, straightanursingstudent.com, and you will see information there as well. All right, we're talking today about pleural effusion. So pleural effusion is defined as a buildup of excess fluid between the pleura. So recall that the pleura is a serous membrane that essentially folds back on itself to create a pleural sac for each lung. So the inner layer is the visceral pleura, and that covers each lung. And then the outer layer, which is the parietal pleura, is attached to the chest wall. And then pleural fluid between these two layers allow the layers to slide easily against one another as the lungs move and inflate with respirations. Now, there are two types of fluids associated with pleural effusion. Exudative fluid is high in protein and is associated with effusions caused by blockages in the blood or lymphatic vessels, infections, tumors, injury to the lungs, and inflammation. And then transudative fluid is low in protein and is associated with conditions that allow fluid to leak into the pleural space, such as with heart failure. Now, in a healthy individual, the pleural space holds approximately 5 to 10 mils of fluid, just a tiny little bit. A pleural effusion is present with just 25 mils of fluid, though that effusion typically wouldn't show on an x-ray. And it probably wouldn't cause any symptoms. A pleural effusion typically shows on x-ray when it gets to about 150 mils. And again, patients may not have symptoms until it gets quite a bit larger, maybe even up to 300 mils. So of course, this can vary widely from patient to patient. So now let's talk about risk factors for pleural effusion. There are a lot of risk factors and disease conditions that put someone at risk for pleural effusion. So some common disease conditions that can cause or lead to a pleural effusion include pneumonia, heart failure, pulmonary embolism, cirrhosis, pancreatitis, and cancer. In fact, pleural effusion is often one of the first noticeable indicators that a patient has cancer. The most common cancers that cause pleural effusion are lung cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, mesothelioma, and lymphoma. When a pleural effusion is associated with cancer, it is often referred to as a malignant pleural effusion. Other risk factors for pleural effusion include smoking, chronic alcohol use, and exposure to asbestos. Even some medications can cause pleural effusion. Some examples include amiodarone, which is an antiarrhythmic used to treat supraventricular tachycardia and atrial fibrillation. Methotrexate is a DMARD that is commonly used for rheumatoid arthritis. And remember, a DMARD is a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug. Another medication, dasatinib, is an antineoplastic agent used in the treatment of leukemia. And then hydralazine is an antihypertensive that can cause something called drug-induced lupus syndrome, which can present as pleural effusion in some patients. Now, elderly individuals are also at higher risk due to underlying respiratory disease, the presence of other comorbidities, and simply by getting exposed to causative agents for a longer period of time, such as cigarette smoke. Now, what are some complications of pleural effusion? So a key one is diminished respiratory function. That excess fluid presses against the lung, and if it's big enough, it prevents full lung expansion. Further, the patient could have adhesions and scarring that develop, which also further impede respiratory function. Infection is another complication of pleural effusion. Infections can be very serious and lead to sepsis, which, as you know, can be life-threatening. And then there's empyema, which is a pus-filled or purulent fluid-filled pocket in the pleural space, and pneumothorax. Drainage of the fluid can potentially cause a pneumothorax to develop. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But now that you have a little background knowledge about pleural effusion, let's dive into the key nursing implications using the straight A nursing LATTE method. So the first letter is L in the LATTE method, and that stands for look. Basically, how does the patient look? What are their signs and symptoms? So depending on the size of the pleural effusion, some patients may have no symptoms. When symptoms are present, they could include things like a nonproductive cough, tachypnea, dyspnea, orthopnea, and persistent hiccups. The patient may also complain of chest pain, which is often described as sharp and associated with movements such as respiration, coughing, and sneezing. If infection is present, then the patient would look like someone with an infection, right? Fever, chills, malaise, and an elevated white blood cell count. Respiratory assessment may reveal diminished or absent breath sounds over the area of the effusion, shallow respirations tactile fremitus and egophony, which if you don't remember what those are, I'd love for you to go back and listen to my whole episode on respiratory assessment. That's episode 237. And I talk about these things there. So tactile fremitus and egophony. And the patient could possibly even have uneven chest wall expansion with larger effusions. It's also important to note that patient presentation can vary widely depending on what is causing the pleural effusion. For example, if cancer is causing the pleural effusion, the patient will display signs and symptoms associated with cancer. If heart failure is causing the pleural effusion, they'll have signs and symptoms associated with heart failure. So that was L for how does the patient look. Next is the letter A for assessment how do you assess a patient with pleural effusion? So your key nursing assessments will basically be centered on respiratory function. This includes assessing respiratory rate and effort, listening to lung sounds, and observing for respiratory distress. Of course, you're also going to look for that tactile fremitus and the egophony because you're really interested in that now. And again, if you want to review respiratory assessment make sure you go check out episode 237 as soon as you finish this one. Your priority vital signs will include SpO2, heart rate, which will be elevated in instances of low SpO2 or respiratory distress or infection, and of course, also temperature because infection can be associated with pleural effusion. If the patient is complaining of shortness of breath, Ask them to rate it on a zero to five scale or whatever scale your facility uses. I just find that zero to five is much easier for patients to use than zero to 10, which just has a lot more nuance to it. So, zero to five scale could be one way to assess shortness of breath. If they're complaining of pain, perform a thorough pain assessment. And I always recommend using the OPQRST format. So, O is for onset. When did the pain start? P is for provocation and palliation. Basically, what makes the pain worse? What makes the pain better? For a patient with pleural effusion, they might say it hurts more when I take a breath. It hurts more when I cough. Q is the quality of the pain. They'll probably state that it's a sharp pain. R stands for radiate. Does the pain radiate anywhere? You could ask them about that. S is for severity, and that will vary from patient to patient. That's your zero to 10 scale. And then time. How long ago did the pain start? How long have you had this problem? And then some patients with pleural effusion will have a chest tube or a pleural catheter. Often we use the pleurx That's the brand name of the pleural catheter. So they'll have a chest tube or a x in place. So if they do... Part of your assessment is inspecting the drainage system for patency, examining the drain exit site to ensure it is clean, dry, and intact, and of course, assessing the chest tube drainage system if you are using it. And you would also look at the drainage itself and make sure that you're noting the characteristics of that drainage. So that was A for assess, and the next letter is a T, and that stands for tests. What tests are conducted for a patient with a pleural effusion? So pleural effusions are identified via chest x-ray, chest CT scan, and ultrasound. Once identified, the MD may send a sample of that fluid for analysis where it is tested for things like the protein count, the cell count, cancer, and infection. Other important diagnostic tests will be aimed at identifying the underlying cause for the pleural effusion. For example, if it is suspected the patient has heart failure, then they may get an echocardiogram. If infection is the cause, then following things like white blood cells will be important. So that was the first T. There are two T's in latte, and the next one is for treatments. So basically, what treatments are provided to address pleural effusion? So goals of therapy in pleural effusion are to remove the fluid, which usually causes an immediate improvement in respiratory status, prevent recurrences, and treat the underlying cause. Now, smaller pleural effusions may not actually have their fluid removed. They may be more of a watch and wait kind of situation. We're talking here about pleural effusions that require treatment. So, thoracentesis is the procedure that is most often used to remove pleural fluid. For a thoracentesis, the patient is often positioned upright to ensure the diaphragm is at its lowest position and the fluid is at the base. A commonly used position is to sit the patient on the edge of the bed with their arms over the bedside table. If the patient is unable to hold an upright position on their own, they may be positioned on their unaffected side with the head of the bed raised to about 45 degrees. The practitioner then sterilizes and numbs the skin, inserts the needle, and removes the pleural fluid into a collection container. Now, this fluid usually is sent off to the lab for analysis, and how this is done can vary from one facility to the next. Regardless, if you're sending containers to the lab for analysis, make sure you affix that patient label, include the date, Include the time and include your initials. Now, throughout the procedure, monitor the patient for signs of discomfort and respiratory distress, which could indicate a pneumothorax. In the electronic medical record, you'll record the patient's vital signs throughout the procedure, the amount of fluid that was removed, the fluid characteristics such as color and viscosity, and the patient's overall response to the procedure. Once the thoracentesis is complete, apply dressing to the side. It might even just be a little Band-Aid or a small gauze dressing and monitor it for excessive leaking or bleeding. A little bit of leaking is pretty normal, but excessive leaking or bleeding would need further evaluation. It's also really important to observe the patient for any signs of respiratory compromise, especially pneumothorax. Signs of pneumothorax include dropping SpO2. Absent breath sounds on the affected side, considerable respiratory distress, unequal chest wall expansion, and in severe cases where it becomes a tension pneumothorax, a deviated trachea, and really poor hemodynamics. If this serious, serious complication is suspected, alert the MD so they can decide if a stat chest x-ray needs to be obtained. Another treatment are chest tubes and drains. So in some cases, thoracentesis may not be enough to remove the accumulated fluid or the MD may choose to remove the fluid more slowly. In other cases, the patient may have a recurrent buildup of fluid and require more long-term drainage. So when this happens, a chest tube or a pleural drain may be utilized. While the patient will need to be in the hospital if they have a chest tube, they can be discharged to home with the pleural drain. That was that pleur-X that I mentioned a moment ago. Another treatment for pleural effusion is pleurodesis. In patients with recurrent pleural effusion, which is again common in cancer, that malignant pleural effusion, a procedure called pleurodesis may be performed. So the goal of pleurodesis is to eliminate the pleural space so that fluid can't accumulate. And there are two main ways this is performed. One is through direct manual injury to the pleura during a surgical procedure called VATS, V-A-T-S. That stands for Video Assisted Thoracoscopic Surgery. Really hard to say. Video Assisted Thoracoscopic Surgery, which is why we just call it a VATS procedure. The other and probably more common method is through administration of a sclerosing agent into the pleural space. These chemical sclerosants can be instilled via a pleural catheter or during a VATS procedure. A common sclerosing agent that is used is talc. All right, another treatment for pleural effusion is to address the underlying cause. So treatments will also include specific interventions aimed at treating the underlying cause when applicable. For example, if the pleural effusion is a result of infection, antibiotics will be prescribed. If the patient has pleural effusions due to heart failure, then they may be prescribed diuretics and other medications utilized to manage their cardiac condition. If pleural adhesions are causing the accumulation of fluid, they can be lysed during a VATS procedure and may involve the installation of a thrombolytic to break up the adhesions. And then just some general treatments for pleural effusion would be things like pain medication as needed, it can be very painful for the patient, supplemental oxygen as needed, and maintaining an upright position, which can help facilitate breathing. So to recap, some treatments for pleural effusion are thoracentesis, chest tubes and drains, one of those is a drain that they can go home with, pleurodesis with that either manual or chemical sclerosing agent to kind of eliminate the pleural space so fluid can't get in there, addressing the underlying cause, and then general things are pain medicine, oxygen, and maintaining an upright position. So the final letter in the Latte Method is an E for educate. What are we going to teach our patients? What are we going to teach our patients' families? So There are a lot of things going on with pleural effusion. One of the things that you want to make sure the patient understands, because there's so many different underlying causes, is that they know why it's happening in their case. If it's related to malignancy, ensure the patient understands they could have recurrent pleural effusions. You also want to educate the patient or the family about signs and symptoms of a worsening pleural effusion and when to seek medical care. That would essentially be with increased dyspnea, any respiratory distress, or increased pain. You want to provide smoking cessation resources to help reduce pleural effusion risk. And while you're at it, since alcohol use can increase risk, throw that in as well. Teach the patient how to splint with a pillow when coughing to help reduce pain with coughing. If a pleurodesis is done, the MD may want the patient to change position frequently for the first couple of hours after the procedure. So ensure the patient understands the importance of doing this and that it is done to distribute that sclerosing agent evenly. You also need to teach drain care for patients going home with a pleural catheter and ensure they know to watch for signs of infection at the insertion site and in the drainage itself. So to round out your understanding of pleural effusion and everything that goes with it, there are a few other episodes to go and listen to. One of those I mentioned, Respiratory Assessment, that is episode 237. And then if chest tubes make you nervous or you're just still learning about them, that would be covered in episode 124. And because pancreatitis is kind of a common reason for pleural effusion, I talk about this in episode 66. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. So I hope this helped you understand pleural effusion so that you can do an excellent job taking care of these patients in real life or in nursing school exam life. At this point in the episode, I usually let you know what's coming up next week because I really want you to come back and listen. But I have to be totally honest. I haven't decided yet. And you want to know why? Because next week is episode 300. and And I'm just really feeling a lot of pressure to make it extra, extra amazing. And I'm really hoping that I have an exciting announcement to share with you then. So I guess you'll just have to come back next week and see. And again, if you're curious about boot camp and you're starting nursing school soon, then go to straightanursingstudent.com, click on courses in the top menu bar, you'll see all kinds of information about it. So I will see you back here next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.